should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy Monday, Monday, November 27th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. The Michelle Miao Show is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. I hope that everyone had a wonderful holiday break, a Thanksgiving break, and although it is a holiday for most of us who see it as the, um, as a, as a, I guess, recognition of uh, the uh, indigenous genocide, and what I'm referring to is, you know, the Christopher Columbusing of the United States and taking away land from indigenous people. Uh, Thanksgiving does also mean that people recognize the first harvest of the year and bring uh, families together. So (laughs) as long as you acknowledge and are mindful of the history of this country while you are giving thanks and celebrating with your families, I hope that that was something you kept in mind, especially because this presidency doesn't want to acknowledge the fact that we're having, um, you know, things that we need to to be mindful of the, the the environment, especially the indigenous tribes who are still around are fighting for our environment. Uh, well, welcome back from the holiday break. We didn't have a chance to play John Zipper's week-to-week political roundtable talk from the Commonwealth Club, so we'll go ahead and do that today. Enjoy the program. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Hello, I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's week-to-week political roundtable. You can find out more about week-to-week including how to attend a program when you're in the Bay Area, and about all of our 450 programs a year by going to commonwealthclub.org. Now, let's join today's program. Well, hello everyone and welcome to tonight's program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I am Ladaris Cordell and it's my pleasure to be in conversation with Julie Lithcott-Hames. Julie is a woman of many talents. She has earned both both her JD and an MFA. She served as Stanford's Dean of Freshmen, and she wrote the New York Times bestseller and anti-helicopter parenting manifesto, (laughs) How to Raise an Adult. So we're here today to talk about her memoir, Real American. In Real American, she writes beautifully about, in her own words, the thousand small cuts racism imposes on African Americans and her experience as a biracial woman in America. So there's lots to discuss and we're gonna get right started. Welcome, Julie. Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing this, Ladoris. It's my pleasure. It's a joy to be here with you. It is my pleasure. We go back a long way, so this is good. Um, So Julie, uh, the New York Times has a video program and recently they released another video uh, and it's called Being Biracial, colon, a choice, luxury, or delusion? Mm. What is it for you? Um, When the term biracial came out in the late 1980s, I clung to it. I sought to bring it within me to internalize it. I write as as it felt 
as if it was uh, like getting an organ transplant. Because I'd been told all my life, you are black, and yet I have this really light skin and this voice and this hair. I never seemed to be black enough for the black community. I certainly wasn't white. And so when biracial was offered, I said, yes, I finally don't have to deny the existence of white, my white mother, who happens to be here today. And, and yet, I, will, I go on to say it was a fleeting lover because uh, I finally began, as I, as I grew to love myself as a black woman um, and found a sense of belonging within the black community, despite the things that might alienate me from it, um, I was able to claim black. Uh, and to describe myself as biracial really as a fact of my ancestry, but no longer the way I identify. So, um, yeah, that's my answer. I'm trying to be succinct tonight. It's <laughs> all right. So, so Julie, why write this book? Was there an event, a moment, uh, when something happened that made you think, okay, I need to do this? I was doing the MFA uh, to try to be a better writer, to write that anti-helicopter parenting book. And every time I wasn't writing the anti-helicopter parenting book, race kept coming up. In my poetry classes, in my playwriting classes, in my creative nonfiction classes, um, these memories that I had buried um, or that had squirreled themselves into me um, were asking for my conscious attention. Um, and so I guess I had loved myself to the point of self-acceptance as a black woman, and once I was embracing my own self in this body, in this being, then I could tell the truth of what my experience had been instead of pretending all of those things hadn't happened. So this, <laughs> this book, this is a book, and by the way, I, I love this photo. It's yeah. a great photo. Yes. My mom took it. So it's a lovely yeah. photo. How old were you in this photo? About 15, 16 months. And was, where, where was this taken? We lived in Lagos, Nigeria. I was born in Lagos, Nigeria to a British mom and an African-American dad. And we were about to move to Manhattan, to the States. But mom captured this in our backyard in Lagos. Wow, I love the photo. So Julie, this, this is a book about race, a subject about which we'll talk about in, in, in a little bit. But this book also raises the question, are you an American? So the 2016 election made it clear that there isn't universal agreement on what it means to be an American. A recent survey by the Democracy Fund found that across party lines, we're talking just the two major parties, well over half the people surveyed agreed that respecting political institutions and laws having citizenship and accepting people of diverse backgrounds are essential to calling yourself an American. And the survey showed divides between parties. The most significant disagreements about who is an American centered on the importance of living in America for most of one's life, mm. being born in America, and being a Christian. And among those surveyed, Trump supporters felt the strongest about these factors. Yeah. So what, in your view, is a real American? I think it's a term that applies to all of us or none of us. I think it's a fiction. Um, I chose it uh, because I was tired of those right-wing politicians saying, Real Americans deserve this, right? Real Americans want that. And I knew they weren't talking about us and many of us. And I thought, I mean, can I say that here at Inform? Like, I'm a real American. Like, shut up. Stop trying to carve a line, you know, along racial lines and call yourselves real Americans and say the rest of us don't belong. Uh, we are as entitled to be here as any of the rest of you. And, um, uh, and so stop it. Okay, But I also use this term because my slave ancestor, Sylvie, who lived in Charleston, South Carolina in the late 1700s and you was write about her raped in the book. by her master, right. and that act is the reason I exist, she made me a real American. She was here on this soil. She was in Charleston, the harbor town through which one in two African slaves were brought. They didn't consider her a human being. But she made me a real American. 
So this is sort of a, ain't I a real American? I mean, I try to channel Sojourner Truth in here. Ain't I a woman? Ain't I a real American? My people go all the way back. My people built this country. You know, we have not even begun to scratch the surface of what we owe African Americans um, by way of recompense for all that has been done uh, by us, against us. And so I am trying to, to, you know, I guess I'm trying to say, if I'm not a real American, nobody is. You know, and, uh, and I actually believe we all are. Okay. So Julie, do you think that most biracial individuals question their Americanness? Do you see them, do you think they see themselves as real Americans? I know you can't speak for all biracial people, but from your experience, do you think there is that questioning? So I need to, to mention my age. I'm about to be 50. Uh, my parents, right? Right on, exactly. Woohoo, 50. I see you, Gen X. <laughs> 50 is the new 30. I have to tell you that because I'm soon to be 70. 70 is the new 50. Exactly. Right. Woo. OK. I acknowledge my age because times have changed. When I was born in 1967 to a black man and a white woman, there was no term biracial, as I've said. Loving versus Virginia, declaring my parents' marriage legal, you know, and invalidating laws in 17 states that said my parents should not marry, should not have sex and bear children, you know, that was all happening around the time of my birth. So the population of mixed race children began to grow as the, our parents' unions became okay in the eyes of the American government in the various states. So now we have a burgeoning multiracial mixed race population, and I don't pretend to know what their experience has been. I grew up in a time where to be me was to be odd, was to be exotic, or to be treated like a zoo animal. What are you? She's your mother? You know, where are you from? Like, what is that hair? You know, I was an oddity, and I think these days, because of the um, multiplicity of intermixtures, the various intersectionalities, particularly in our community. To be a mixed race person today is to have a markedly different experience than I had coming up in the 70s and early 80s. I hope biracial or multiracial people today feel uh, very American. It is, it is a very American construct. Um, we are the embodiment of, in some ways, America's ideals about anyone can come here and anyone can be here and live freely and fall in love and do what you will. And people do what you will and it ends up with mixed race people sometimes, you know? <laughs> I hope it's easier for people today and I think it is. Oh. You, you write beautifully and honestly about your relationship with your mom. Um, near the end of the book, you write, and I quote, it comes time to address things with my mother. She is 77, still strong, but more tired now, still very self-reliant, and so frustrated when ready, and still beautiful. In my kitchen one day, I speak to her pointedly with the voice of a woman no longer afraid to confront her past, her accuser, her accused. How could you choose to live in Verona? How dare you chide me for not having black friends when you raised me in an all-white town? She looks at me and begins to cry. So Julie, what happened? That's our favorite part of the book. No. <laughs> it's a joke. My mother well, and I are in anguish listening well, to what we're, I've we're decided to put we're on gonna, We're going to dig deep here. Yeah. So, so what happened? Why, why did you confront your mom? Uh, did you blame her for something, and if so, for what? And, and what has been your mom's reaction to the book? I love you. I know you do. Um, my mother, when I began drafting this book, never said you didn't have these experiences, never said you shouldn't write this book. She said, I'm happy for you that you have come to a place where you can contend with uh, what your life has been like to date and that you're writing about it. I was yelling at my mom um, because as I came to terms with this upbringing, I was angry about some things. But I was yelling at my mom because my daddy has been gone for 22 years. I didn't have the ability to interrogate him about any of this stuff. My mom's the parent who is still with us. And so in some ways I took it all out on her when daddy surely shouldered more than half 
of the responsibility um, because he was the man in a fairly traditionally gendered marriage. He was the African-American parent, and he made a lot of those decisions. The decision about where to plunk me down for high school in an all-white town was his. And um, before he died, I just didn't have the wherewithal to, to yell at him, why did you move me to an all-white town? Didn't I deserve, he said to me at one point in high school, white boys will be your friend but never date you. Well, my high school was 1,200 white people and me. So, uh, but I couldn't say to my beloved daddy, then why did you move me here? Don't I deserve love? Don't I deserve to be in relationship? Like, what, what is that? Um, so mom, unfortunately, um, being the, the, you know, the, the parent who's here and very much in my life, we all live in one home together. That's how we afford to live here. Um, you know, she took it. And, um, and, and I so appreciate the fact that you let me say what I needed to say. I will tell you, Julie, that, and all of you know this, a memoir <coughs> is not worth the paper it's written on if it's not brutally honest and truthful. And that's certainly what this memoir is. Um, and LaDoris Cordell just quoted herself. She's one of the people who blurbed my book, which I'm so grateful to you for. And she said exactly that. So about your father, you write this. Daddy was an anarchist, some might say, a prankster, a subversive, a rule breaker, some would say a thug. He was a man of great intellect, tall and strong, still subject to be calling, be, being called boy by any white man at any moment. So Julie, um, your dad, he wasn't, as you said, too keen on your dating um, white boys. Um, did it seem hypocritical to you since he had married a white woman? So just tell us about your dad and about that, if you can. All okay, right. your dad. daddy was born in 1918. Do the math. If he had lived to this day, he would turn 100 in April. So that's my way of sharing with you that he grew up in a different time. He grew up in the Jim Crow South in Oklahoma. He had a very, very different experience from mine. Um, I forget the question you asked me about. So my question was, he didn't want you to date right. white boys, you know but yet he married All right. He boys. wasn't saying he didn't want me to date them. He was saying, baby, white boys will be your friend, but they'll never date you. He wasn't saying, well, maybe he was. Hmm. Um, he loved my mother and, um, and yet had really rigid views about whites and blacks. I think maybe he thought mom was an anomaly among white folk. I think so, she's saying, you know. Um, um, I think he moved me to an all white town because it was the nicer house and a school that they felt was right for me. They were trying to give me opportunity. Um, and he had overlooked what that might do to my psychosocial development as an adolescent, not being around people who might be willing to date me or might be able to console me when, when, when happened. So your dad, though, grew up Jim Crow. There were things that happened to him yeah. that were not good, yeah. racist things. So was he angry? <clears throat> he told me very few stories about his past. He was... Uh, 77 when he died, I was 27. And I think there is so much we don't know about our own parents until we are old enough to know ourselves well enough to really be interested in their story. So I heard the occasional funny story. I knew that he didn't like the 4th of July, um, but I knew that from my mother. He never spoke of it. And it was my mom who sort of informed me with her sort of nodding head and sideways looks, you know, the 4th of July, you know, is about daddy and his blackness and his past. So I gleaned that there were elements of being black in America that had wounded daddy um, so deeply that he couldn't speak of it. Um, would he have applauded Kaepernick for taking a He knee? would, and I do, <laughs> absolutely, <clears throat> yes. You know, and, and he would have applauded Barack Obama, how I wished he had been alive to see Barack Obama elected president. Um, you know, and yet, there, as much as I miss my daddy, there have been times um, 
as Barack Obama became increasingly disrespected in pockets of white America, you know, as Trump rose to power, there have been times when I've been grateful he did not live to see these backslides and these turns because he was of an era and of a generation where so much progress was made. And um, the thought of having to be in conversation with my daddy now about the state of things brings me to tears and, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad he did not have to experience what we're experiencing now. So Julie, if we look at it just kind of superficially, right? You are half black and half white. Yet you write the following. No, I was never white. I am not white because whites do not see, will never see me as one of them, and because I do not want to be. So that means you're black, right? So if you're biracial, I'm confused. So unconfuse me. Y'all have studied the one drop rule. One of America's earliest rules was that black is a stain and whiteness is pure. So if you have one drop of black blood, it went, then you are black. You know, and this is why, this is how they perpetuated the population of slaves. The slaves were raped by their masters and gave birth to lighter children and lighter children. How to keep those children enslaved was to invent this one drop rule. That rule goes all the way back in time, centuries and centuries ago, but the fact of it is with us today. When you are a black man walking down the street trying to hail a cab, your cabbie doesn't know that you've got a white mama. If your skin is brown, is my color brown and darker. You are treated as a black person in this country. You know, the black experience is an experience of being second or third class in many respects in this country. And, um, and so the fact of your ancestry that you might have a white parent or you know, a white grandparent or what have you, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with how you're treated when you walk into a store or walk down the street or you're on an elevator and so on. Um, and that is, you know, that is the reality of being a person of color, of being a brown-skinned person in America. Uh, your spouse, Dan, is white and Jewish. Uh, you have a biracial son and a biracial daughter. And of the and they're all here. They are here, <laughs> sitting here in the front. And um, of the two, you write that, of the two children, yeah. your son Sawyer, you talk about him having, and again, we're just talking skin color, some brownness, yeah. right? Have you and Dan had the talk with Sawyer? And how is he faring in America? So my, our beautiful son Sawyer and beautiful daughter Avery are here, 18-year-old, 16-year-old, yes. <laughs> right? And, um, and my husband, whom I adore, who loved me and my black hair before I did. We've been together 30 years, and I'm grateful for you every day. Um, yes, we have had the talk with Sawyer. Um, and for those of you who may not know what the talk is, the talk is what uh, we parents of black children, uh, particularly black boys, say to them to prepare them as they prepare to go out into America, as they prepare to leave our homes and leave our neighborhoods and move out beyond whatever cushion of safety that may feel to be, particularly if we're upper middle class and we live in communities where we think we've sort of passed into some status where they're protected. You know, we know that there is, we know actually that they are not necessarily protected and safe in those communities, Trayvon Martin being the most excruciating recent example. Um, and so we have the talk, which is, hey, son, sweetheart, you're heading out um, tonight. Want to remind you how to conduct yourself if and when something goes down, if and when you're in a car that gets pulled over, if and when you're in a group um, where something has gone down. Those of you with darker skin may be regarded as the problem uh, as, as, the, as the perpetrator, as the, as the problem maker. And so the, the excruciating aspect of this is we're trying to teach them to be safe and smart and protect themselves. You know, it flies in the face though of the other message we're trying to send, which is you are beautiful and you matter and you belong here. So we have to do this really careful dance, which is prepare them to be smart and safe and yet not undercut their opportunity for self-love and self-acceptance. That's a hard thing it to do. It is an incredibly right? hard thing to do. Um, and, and I think that the, 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 the part that for me brings anguish is um, their innocence. Um, is robbed so much earlier 
um, than I think the innocence of children generally is because at some point they move from being these adorable black and brown boys um, to becoming thugs in some people's eyes. You know, and I write about this. You know, you in you transition before white eyes into thugs. They're still our sons. They're still our our family. Um, they're still adored by us. But uh, the American narrative, the American racist narrative, says, "Ah, but now they are men of color." And the racist narrative then attaches its hooks into them and says, "Presumed guilty, bad, thug, criminal, not deserving of mercy, not presumed innocent, um, etc." So about your beautiful daughter Avery, you wrote this: "I brace for some white person to ask if I am her nanny." Tell us about that. So, um, so, so you can't see my beloved children. I can. Um, you know, they look like a mixture of the of me and Dan. Um, I think to the world, Avery looks more like Dan, and to the world, Sawyer looks more like me. Um, who knows? The Bay Area is such a place of consciousness around race and intersectionality. Who knows? But I know there are pl there are times when Avery has been asked, "She's your mother." Just like I was asked she, with a white mother, right? So there are white folks who look at me and think Avery and I don't match, which breaks my heart. Or they'll see her with her arm around this cute boy and they'll say, who's he? Are you dating him? She's like, he's my brother. <laughs> and then they say, he's your brother? So Avery with lighter skin and hair that is a looser curl than mine has been told across her 16 years she doesn't match a couple members of her family. I worried that somebody would ask me if I was her nanny. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. I'm glad it didn't happen. I know plenty of people to whom it has happened. I, you know, yeah. Insults, the intended and the unintended, are what just about every black person in America has suffered. And I have a long list of them. Yeah. Let me give you just one example. Uh, for me, the terrifying moment when I was stopped in my car in Palo Alto by the police, held at gunpoint, uh, put up against a wall, mm. suspected of being involved in an armed robbery that witnesses reported involved three black men on foot. I was in my car, and this was right after, shortly after I had just been sworn in to the California Bar, a Stanford Law graduate. Uh, you've had your share of racial insults, intended and unintended. Uh, you write about them um, honestly, painfully in the book, and can you give us a few examples? Sure. Um, in my all-white high school, 1,200 kids, Middleton, Wisconsin, I am um, uh, student body president, I'm on the pom-pom team, I'm on the concert choir, I'm doing very well in my classes. Pom-pom team? Pom-pom, I know. <laughs> all right, all right. Yay. Um, I know. Uh, youth. Um, and on my 17th birthday, I was feeling incredibly beautiful that day. I had the, the wool dress, the black dress with the shoulder pads, it was the 80s, and I had the heels, the pumps, and the lipstick, and the hair, all smooth, smooth, smooth. I used to press my hair to try to make it look like the white girl's hair. And somebody wrote the N-word on my locker that day, on my birthday, three times on this beautiful locker sign my best friend had gone to such trouble to make for me. And um, I didn't tell anybody. I was so ashamed. I was so embarrassed. Um, I desperately did not want anyone to know. I just crossed out the words, found a black marker, crossed out the words, took the sign home, cut the words out, and put it in my scrapbook where it remains to this day, you know, as part of the recorded history of my childhood. Um, the truth of that was I felt like the N-word of my town. I, I felt that I'd been sort of called out. And then I think I spent, I was 17, it was my 17th birthday, I think I spent the next 20 to 22, 25 years trying never to be called that word again, which meant trying to perform myself in a way that would not incur that response from whites. So try to be the black person they didn't loathe, fear, or disregard. 
and, and, and to sort of make it with white people, which required a real subjugation of, you know, my sense of self and my self-love as an African-American. You know, much, um, much less uh, weighty things, but more frequent were the sort of exotis, ex exotifying, um, the sort of touching my hair and the, oh my gosh, it's, I'm so fascinated, you know, your hair, it's so amazing, and just touching me. And um, let, let me interrupt one second. Mm -hmm. What would you tell Sawyer and Avery today if someone had written, uh, and I, I, by the way, I don't like this whole N word, I, I just say, if someone had written on the yeah. locker, what, what would you tell them to do today? What you did, or? Well, I, I hope that I have a relationship with them where they would tell me first, and Dan. Um, I didn't feel that I could tell my parents. I didn't want them to worry that I wasn't okay. Uh, but we didn't do a lot of talking about race and racism in our family. Um, times are different now, and I have tried to uh, make it much safer to, to have those conversations in our house. So I hope they would tell me, as we parents all hope, when a child experiences something horrendous and horrific, that they would feel safe telling it at home. Um, I would want them also to tell the school that me now would march down the hallway of my high school and say to those people, you have a problem at this school, and here's what it looks like. That's what, what are you going to do about, about it? That's right? exactly what I'm talking about. Right? Right. But, right. And I hope my children have a strong enough sense of self that they, that they could do that. And if they couldn't do it on their own, then I would flank them and go do it with them. Tell us about another incident you wrote in the book. Uh, you went to, was that a Halloween party or something? In Palo Alto. Yes. Tell, tell about that. In the book. Palo Alto is getting extra mention in this yeah, conversation. Well. Uh, it's a fundraiser for the Palo Alto, for the school our kids attend, the elementary school. It was maybe three or four years ago. Um, and it's a murder mystery party. You know one of these things you sign up for? Okay, I'll pay the money, I'll sign up, I'll go to the party, right? It's a murder mystery party. And the, the setting is um, athletes have been marooned on a, desert, on, on a desert island. And certain people have been assigned parts. There are about 50 people. Dan and I go to the party to help. We've signed up to work the party, okay? We're helping the hosts bring the food out and set up the drinks and so on. Can you describe the hosts? They are... They are a um, German uh, expat couple of Germans who are here working in the U.S. for a short time. White folks, German. <coughs> and... Um, and our community is largely white and Asian, and uh, very, very few blacks, a handful of Latino families, um, one Native American family that I happen to know, maybe more. And um, so we're at this party, it's, the music is turned up, there are tiki torches and, and you know candles floating in the pool, and there's food, and the music gets turned up, and this woman comes around the side of the house to the party in blackface. She is dressed head to toe in black face, and I have this moment of feeling like I am drowning. Like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I'm not seeing what I'm seeing. I can't be seeing. This can't be happening. This is happening. And that's sort of how I describe it in the book. And, um, you know, and, and she just joins the group, and people are laughing, and they start dancing, and then there's this guy in this wig, white guy wearing an Afro wig, probably looked kind of like that Afro you and Stephen had back in, Lodoris went to college with my big brother Stephen back at Antioch in the 70s when big Afros were the thing. Huge. Well, this man is in this, <laughs> he's this white guy in this Afro wig and he comes to the center of the dancers and someone shouts, show us your jive dancing. And then he starts to kind of pantomime and mimic um, jive dancing in his view. And I watch these neighbors, some friends, laugh. They're drinking, they're hooting it up. I feel that I'm at a frat party. I feel, you know, my, I feel cotton mouth. I feel, I can't believe this is happening. Um, I feel unsafe. I wanna turn off the music. I wanna say to these people, what the f are you doing? And instead, I worry that they don't know me. They don't know me enough to respect me. They're already doing this and I'm here. So instead of saying anything, I left. I grabbed Dan's hand and we left. And then I wrote the principal and I wrote the lady, uh, you know, no, sorry, I didn't write the lady. Um, I started telling a few people, like, can you believe this happened? You know, so appealing to some of the people who'd been there. You know, the Native American professor, Matt Snip, Stanford was there and he said, Julie, I know I can't believe it happened either. What should we do? We began to brainstorm. Word got out, the, the black faced lady got wind of the fact that I had been offended. So I got one of those emails, sorry if you were offended, right? So all I did was Google blackface and I sent her the link. There you go. And she came to my door and apologized in person. 
um, which was good. Um, but I made a point of, you know, in my head then I thought I'm never going to a party thrown by white folks. I don't know well, because you know what? I felt like I was seeing unleashed whiteness. You know, it was like, this is how they behave when we're not around. Is this how they behave? You know, like this is funny to them. It is not funny to me. Yeah, it's sort of rem reminiscent. I don't know if you've all seen the Eddie Murphy uh, thing where he does being, uh, he gets white face and then he goes only where white people are to see how they really are when we're not around and mm -hmm. it's the same kind of thing it's hilarious mm -hmm. um on youtube hair is a favorite subject of mine as it is of yours uh and you write in the book yeah i did not learn for decades that hair is a psychological barometer for black girls and women it's alternatively our pride or the bane of our existence as we try to locate a sense of self within Western norms of beauty, respond to definitions of neat and tidy and professional, and bear up under humid weather. Great way with words, Julie. Thank you. Julie. Thank you. Um, so how did your mom handle the hair thing uh, when you were growing up, and how did you handle your hair as a teen and as an adult? Because the population of biracial kids was really quite small, you know, Madison Avenue and hair care products weren't catering to biracials, even within the black community, I think, you know, we didn't really know what to do with hair like this. Um, so the creams, the leave-in conditioners that exist today were not around then, and they certainly didn't exist in my neighborhood. Um, my mother did the best she could. She, she would pull the brush through my hair would, you know, I had a little afro, you know, when I was little and then about fourth grade, I wanted hair that looked more like my friends in these white towns, you know, started to want to grow it longer, kind of tame it, tamp it down, you know, put in ponytails with, try to make it ringlet or big ponytail at the back. Um, and, but we didn't have the products. So my hair was just frizzy. It was fuzzy everywhere. Um, and, and I felt like a, in retrospect, the image that I have is that it was like a tumbleweed, you know, just sort of frizzy, fuzzy. Um, and then as a teenager, I just tried desperately, you know, I, I was trying to be attractive to, you know, the boys in my school. And they, you know, they teased me. The, the boys, I say in the book that I fantasized about at night. I know that's hard for my kids to hear. Uh, like, I want to know that. But like, they're teenagers, right? Just like, you have a crush? You know, you want to be attractive? Those boys called me Bozo the Clown, looking at my hair. Because it would rise, you know, I'd, I'd curling iron it down, you know, try to just get it flat and get it straight. I mean, Farrah Fawcett, right? It was like, my white friends had the flippy hair, and I just wanted the flippy hair. I wanted the hair that I could just, you know, do something with. And, and I would curling iron it straight, and then the humidity would just make it rise like a poof, you know, right? <laughs> right on. Jada, Jada's like, yeah. Okay, so... Um, yeah, it took a while um, so to, to locate thing. the products. But yeah. the, these, the taunting you had. So the taunting was—I mean, was it right to your face, or did you hear it kind of? No, it was to my face. Really? Yeah, no, it was. Oh, uh, you know, yeah, it was to my face. It was to my face, and I actually use hair in in some ways as a motif in this book. I mean, as you read this book, if you read this book and I hope you'll read this book. Um, you know, I chart my, my own sense of self as my sense of self and ability to love my black self strengthens. I become someone who can wear her hair the way God made it. You know, I become someone who loves the hair I have instead of trying to make it look like someone else's hair. So my, the hair becomes, and my ability to wear this hair at the workplace, you know, becomes a statement of self-love, a statement of I, I am here, I belong here, and I'm not trying to please you any longer. All the hair. Yeah. So this will come as a surprise, I think, to many people who haven't read the book. Certainly surprised me. Um, you dabbled for a bit in Mormonism. Oh my God, Doris. <laughs> I, was, I was surprised. So, so, um, so the question is, uh, was that a part of your journey to becoming a real American? <laughs> it's in the book. It's in the book. It's in the book. She's read the book three times. That's right. And I'm regretting it right now. <laughs> I think, I think the people who've only read it once did not stumble on that part, but um, boy, what a stumble it was for me. It is interesting. No, here's interesting. okay. So here's why. Here's why. When I was seven, I'm gonna try to tell this quickly. No. When I was seven, we lived in New York. Um, my mother was doing her best to raise a black child as the 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 
advice went, right, not biracial, we didn't have that black child, she would say, my white mother, we are a black family. She was doing her best. Uh, she was the blackest white lady I knew. And, okay, and was really, you know, talking to me about uh, Nikki Giovanni's spin a soft black song and giving me the snowy day, right, the first children's book to have a black child on the cover. And she could say Antasaki Shange, you know, with flair and gusto, you know, names that made white folks go, what? Because my mother had lived in West Africa for seven years. She met my dad in Ghana and had me in Nigeria. So mom is doing her best to represent. So the doorbell rings, I'm seven. My mom, I can feel her uh, concern and anger start to rise. I recognize that in my mother. She walks to the door with sort of a march. I'm walking behind her who's at the door. There are Mormon missionaries on the other side of the door and they say they're spiel and my mother says, I don't think you have anything for us. We're a black family. And the Mormon missionaries agreed with her and turned around and left. <laughs> so I knew in that moment that something was up with the Mormons and that being a black family was problematic. So as fate would offer it to me, one of the white boys in my high school who I had a crush on and who had a crush on me was a Mormon guy. Um, I call him Mark in the book. Um, nice guy, very conservative, made for fiery passion that debates between us and other things. And... <laughs> And I loved him, and I knew this was a church that, you know, it's not a one hour on Sundays church, it's a 24-7 church. And I had my mother, you know, my mom was like, you know, hated the Mormons, and, and his family was nice to me. And my family was not very tolerant of them, and that's because the Mormon church had a policy until 1983 sorry, 1978, that black men couldn't be priests because God had cursed a tribe of people with a skin of blackness. It's in the Book of Mormon. So, and they had a revelation in 1978 that now it's okay for blacks to be priests as they were trying to make their way into Africa and Latin America. God gave them this revelation, okay? <laughs> so this is five years after God decided black men were okay, right. that I am now enveloping myself in the arms of a Mormon. My mother is incensed, but I'm a teenager. <laughs> I'm a teenager and my mother's being incensed makes me want to go, oh yeah? Right. You know, you want to stop me? So I then, you know, I'm trying to be my own self in this family, this very liberal family, telling me what I can do and can't do. My mom says to me, you'll convert to that church over my dead body. So what did I say? Try and stop me. And so I did. I went to college. I came out to Stanford. They had a Mormon church 20 minutes away. I went and took the lessons. I stopped reading the Book of Mormon on the page 66 that says, Cursed with the Skin of Darkness. But I was the sort of impelled forward, you know, as a 19-year-old, 20-year-old. I joined the church. I, I was baptized. I told my family eight months later at Christmas, when they were all gathered, this whole family where I'm the youngest, you know, and they've all had so much more attention than me, and they matter more, they have all their issues and their problems, and I'm just the straight-A kid. And I told them all at Christmas dinner or Christmas Eve dinner that I had joined the Mormon church. And as I say in the church, I am on an island, I am alone on this island, my family abandoned me on this island, and I will not be judged. And my saying to them, I've joined the Mormon church, was my way to just draw a line and say, you know, like, I am here you know, stop trying to tell me what to be. And, um, and then I had a really religious experience at the church a month later where I had this sense that I was gonna be called to give a testimony at a testimony meeting and I knew that I had had a false conversion and I was terrified and I waited in that service, please God, don't let them call me praying, you know, and they call one person, whew, they call the second person, whew, they call the third person, and I have evaded, eluded capture, you know, and finally the service ends and I'm leaving with glee, thank God they didn't call me, and the bishop stops me and he says, Julie, you were next, you know, and I said, I, I, and I said, I know, and I did know. There was something in me that said, you're about to be called to give your testimony, and it terrified me, so I never went back, and um, and I uh, left the church, and you, that's a church you have to really leave. You have to say, I'm leaving. You know, put it in writing. Um, and and with, you know, if there are any Mormons in the room, um, I'm not trying to make fun of your religion. 
it was a bad choice for me. It was a bad, um, it was a evidence of my self-loathing as a black person that I could join a church that had been so hostile to black people wow. for so long. Wow. In five minutes, we're going to take your questions <laughs> Sorry. for Julie. So See, it was a long answer. I want you to start thinking about your questions. And there's a microphone in the back right there. Marissa's is waving her hand. Okay, so you feel free to line up. So in five minutes, we'll take your questions. Um, so um, you said that Dan, your spouse, is Jewish. Have you converted to Judaism? Dan is an atheist. Boy, this, it's all coming out now. <laughs> like, we might as well tell you our social security numbers. Don't worry. We won't. Um, Dan is not religious. Um, I respect religion. I pray. I don't, I'm not a part of organized religion. Uh, but no, Dan did not ask me to convert. Um, Julie, what is your take on the Black Lives Matter movement? Um, I think we're at such an important moment in our time in this country as black people. We say black lives matter. I say black lives matter. I write black lives matter um, to say black lives ought to matter to America. You know, we're not trying to say, and the fact that it's been co-opted by people who say, you know, all lives matter. It's like, come on. You know, when Hurricane Maria hits Puerto Rico, you know, that's not the time to say, oh, like everyone who's ever been hit by a hurricane matters, right? Those people are hurting right now. You don't try to generalize it. You ignore the specific pain when you do that. It's like they think we're saying we're black supremacists, black lives matter. We're not black supremacists. We're not. We're saying we matter to our lives ought to matter as much as white lives do and they don't. And we're fighting for that to be one day true and we're doing it in response to the video evidence of what happens on the streets of America to black people, black men and women, particularly at the hands of law enforcement. Well, you spent a good deal of your time as an administrator at Stanford. You With you. That's true. Uh, you became known as Dean Julie, Dean of the Freshman. You write in your book that something happened at Stanford where there was a program, I don't know if it was the black graduation, I'm not sure, yeah. but something happened that you were okay. Okay yeah. with you, Yeah. okay with everything, so. Yeah, so um, as is the case on a number of campuses, um, on schools that have a decent critical mass of black students, there's uh, the main graduation ceremony for everybody and uh, a graduation ceremony preceding it in the black community where students are presented with kente cloth uh, which is cloth of the Ashanti people from Ghana, um, often embroidered with the name of the school or the class year, and Stanford does that. And I didn't go to my own black grad, we call it, when I was a student, because I didn't feel black enough, because I had a white mother, because I have this light skin and so on. I didn't feel a connection to the black community as a student at Stanford in the 80s, but by the time I'm now a dean, I'm being invited to come and sit on the stage with the faculty and with the um, staff who are black and support our graduates. Um, and I was scared because um, I, I worried, am I, you know, do I belong here still? I was still sort of going through these contortions of, you know, will I find acceptance in the black community? Um, scared isn't the right word, but I just mean apprehensive. Like, do I as a light-skinned black person belong here? So I'm sitting on the stage and I'm watching the graduates cross and there, this graduate comes this way and the parents come this way and you know the parents present the kente cloth as kind of a hood, a hooding ceremony if you will. And I watch a Nigerian couple come past and in their silk uh, fabrics and I, and I have this memory from Nigeria. I was born there and the Nigerians were the first people I knew and the, a thousand people are thunderously applauding the Nigerian couple, you know, hooding their black child. And then this elderly single woman comes dark uh, dark-skinned single woman she greets whom I presume is her grandson she's that old he's that young I presume that everybody's wildly applauding the whole audience and then this white woman and black man come to the stage and this caramel child comes to the stage and I'm so worried for them will they be met with applause they looked like my family my parents and me and they came to the stage and the people applauded wildly. And it was my first sense, this wild loving embrace from a thousand black folks that people like me belong. You know, I'm crying a fraction right now of what I cried on the stage that night. <laughs> people were handing me handkerchiefs. I mean, I was like, you know, like I was just, 
It just brought it, was it all like home a for you, didn't it? It was like a baptism. You know, it was it was religious. I felt this sense of embrace of the black community and of my white mother um, that I um, wasn't sure until that point was there. Wow. And then it was like everything changed. Wow. It was like everything changed. Really? Yeah. I felt a sense of belonging in the black community that I had never, ever felt in any other community. So I finally felt sort of like called home. You know, I felt, um, I had felt, you know, like a motherless child, not a motherless child. I have an amazing mother, but within blackness, sure. I finally felt that embrace. It's so interesting from not being comfortable enough to go to your own black graduation yeah. and then here it is, yeah. it all came yeah. around, came yeah. full circle. Yeah. What has been the reaction of your children and your spouse to this book? I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Sawyer just shouted, I love it, which I appreciate. Um, he's home from college on break, and he's diving into the book, which I love. I know Dan cries every time he rereads a draft, every time he hears me talk. Um, and, um, you know, um, I remember when I, I shared a draft with Avery and I, I kind of just flagged all the parts she was in, you know, because I just wanted to like, I want you to know this, what I'm saying. Is it accurate? Are you OK with it? That kind of thing. And I remembered watching, you know, Avery was reading it in our living room in our open, you know, one big room at the bottom of the house. And there she is. And I'm keeping my distance. I'm in the kitchen, but I'm looking over at her trying to see like what page is she on? How's this going? <laughs> and I watch Avery experiencing emotion. Um, uh, and comes to me with tears and said, you know, I'm sorry it was so hard for you, mom, something like wow. that, you know, such empathy. Um, and, um, so I think, I think they're, I think they're feeling good. And what about Dan? What about Dan? Yeah. Dan is, um, Dan supports me in being me. Dan loves me no matter what. And, um, Dan, uh, my editor says Dan comes out as being the most lovable, incredible person in this book. So well, he does. I think he's looking he pretty great in here. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Dan loved my, I said Dan loved me before I really could love myself. And we were in the same dorm and I came out of the shower, you know, the girl's shower with a bathrobe on and, you know, my hair is coiled and wet. You know, he'd never, ever seen me with, without pressed straight hair. And he comes around the corner and he sees me and I don't have my makeup on and I got my hair all, you know, natural and wet and I'm mortified. It's my boyfriend. And he goes, you have curly hair. And, <laughs> right? And, and Naveen is laughing. Um, and I clutch my robe to myself and I say, yeah? Because those white boys who teased me in high right. school, you know, and he leans toward me and he says, I love it. And I was like, what? <laughs> I still scurried back to my room to like do yeah. something with it, but he loved That's my nice. black hair before I, That's before a nice I did. Story. Yeah. That's a nice story. Anyone have questions? If so, there is a microphone back there and uh, we don't see anyone. Don't be shy. Come on. This is. Here's somebody coming now. Go. Can anybody hear me? Okay. You have a sign Hello? stuck to you. Is that Bernadette? Feel free. Hello. There we go. Okay. Now we've got some questions. All right. And before you, before those, as you line up to ask your questions, just let me just give you one little reminder. Um, I was a judge for almost 19 years, and uh, so sometimes lawyers had a tendency to just run off and talk and talk and talk. So I had the rule of the three Bs in my courtroom, and let's be clear, be brief, be seated. So let's, we'll follow the three Bs here tonight. All right, Great go right ahead. Um, thank you both for being here tonight and for just speaking with such honesty and clarity around the experiences. Um, Julie, Dean Julie, I'm wondering if you could bring together sort of the, all the work you did on how to parent, right? And how to speak to children, their parents, in this very challenge, I'm finding it very challenging to parent during this time, when I feel like there are so many of these um, cuts, microaggressions that are happening all over. How can we as parents speak to our young, our children growing up about how to be good allies to those who are being attacked or feeling not welcomed, or if you have a child who does feel attacked or unwelcomed, how do you, what would you say parents should say to their kids so that we can ensure that they don't lose that sense of self-love and as they move out into the, you know, unfortunately feeling uncaring world? 
Thank you so much, my friend. Appreciate the question. One of the things we do when we overparent is we try to shield kids from painful things, um, try to experience their, handle their emotions for them, solve and smooth it for them instead of letting them, as Brene Brown would say, you know, sit with their sadness and their grief and their unhappiness. Um, Brene Brown, who writes about vulnerability, says, you know, I cannot. I cannot heal it, I cannot fix it for you, but I can sit with you in it and experience it. And I think we have to be able to do that as parents. For a child who has experienced um, something awful, um, what we need is to help that child have agency in their lives and around that circumstance. We do a lot of discounting and not believing of kids who come from marginalized communities. Did it really happen the way you think it happened? Was it really that bad, right? We do that um, for all kinds of, with respect to all kinds of identities and experiences. And what we need to be doing as parents is to be listening to our children and believing our children um, and advocating for our children. We all need, when we go through difficult things, we need allies to believe us and to flank us, which means you know someone who will stand with us as we are trying to stand strong ourselves. The older our kids get, the more you know they are able to stand on their own two feet and be supported by us. Um, when they're very little, we need to be the ones um, really taking the lead uh, for them. Um, when I was in Baltimore a couple, three nights ago, I was at the Enoch Pratt Free Library and a little white girl age five was there with her eight-year-old brother and her two parents, both all white. The mother is a former colleague of ours at Stanford, now lives in Baltimore. She texted me late in the night and she said, our son had a lot of questions for us. You know, he heard me say the N-word. In my reading, when I read from the book, I don't hold back, you know, and I, I said to the kids afterwards, you've probably heard, probably heard some things that might concern you, um, and I want you to talk with your parents about it as you go home and, and tonight and tomorrow. And so their eight-year-old did. Their five-year-old said, I know she was speaking to my ears, but it felt that she was speaking to my heart. A five-year-old white girl said that, and I think that is the greatest compliment I've ever received, and I share it with you to say, they are smarter than we know. They are more intuitive than we know. They're not born racist. You know, they're born compassionate beings. You know, let us not let our children lose that. Let us not let the world harden them or make them indifferent to suffering. You know, we want to raise young humans to be compassionate toward others. So we have to dare to have these conversations. Just like when someone dies, we don't want to talk to our kids about it because we think they can't handle it. You know who can't handle it? We can't handle it. So in these difficult conversations about race, we have to get over our own feelings of worry and inadequacy and dare to speak to our children as the humans they are and dare to help them understand the values that we have and that we hold dear so that they can go out into this world and make it a better place. Especially so, given the, the world as it is now. Absolutely. It is an informed tradition to ask all the speakers the following question. So Julie, you get it, and it is, what is your 60-second idea to change the world? I think that I have written this book to try to build compassion. I think we are suffering from a lack of compassion for anyone who's different than us. I have written about the black experience, not the black experience, my black experience. With all the privilege that I have with my light skin and my upper middle class status, I have tried to tell the truth of what it has li been like to be me in this America in these times. And I'm hoping that it will build, in addition to being something black folks and biracial folks and people of color and queer folks and poor folks and immigrants and anyone who's been made to feel like the other in this country, as so many of us do, in addition to all those who I hope will nod and say, yes, she is telling some of my truth. I'm hoping folks beyond those communities will start to feel some compassion and interest in learning more about an experience that is not yours. Radical compassion is what is needed, and that takes being interested in someone else's story, listening to it, believing it, and then becoming an advocate for whatever need they might have to be more heard in this nation. Thank you, Julie. So, so, I read Julie's book three times to prepare for this interview. You need only read it once <laughs> to have it change your life. Julie Lithcott-Hames, thank you for sharing your thoughts, your life, and most importantly, your heart with all of us this evening. Let's hear it for Julie Lithcott-Hames.
Thank you for joining us for another edition of Week to Week from the Commonwealth Club, airing on the Michelle Miao Show on the Progressive Voices Network. I'm John Zipperer, and you can also hear me Tuesdays when I co-host Michelle Miao's program with her. Find out more about the club at commonwealthclub.org. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to MichelleMeow.com.